This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, it's another great day at sea. 20 years ago this week, I was at sea aboard the USS George Washington somewhere in the English Channel, about to embark with President Clinton for the commemoration of the 50th anniversary of D-Day. In all my years of serving as a presidential advance man, there were few things more thrilling than spending a night on an aircraft carrier, nor few things more welcome than finally getting off. The commemoration of June 6, 1944, occurred again this week, now 70 years after D-Day, with President Obama this year, the American commander-in-chief, paying tribute to the sacrifice that saved the world. And more than 150,000 souls set off toward this tiny sliver of sand upon which hung more than the fate of a war, but rather the course of human history. The boys of Pontu Hoc, of Omaha Beach, of Juno and Sword, are 20 years older than they, were, than they were when I was with them in 1994. And while it was wonderful to see so many eyewitness accounts of D-Day from vet, veterans this week, it's also true that many I met two decades ago have passed into eternity. But wherever they are, either in Normandy this week or in their eternal rest, we are grateful for what they did now 70 years ago. A more recent appreciation of what our men and women in uniform do to project power, keep the peace, and defend U.S. interests overseas comes courtesy of Jeff Dyer, the great celebrated author of such works as Jeff in Venice and Yoga for People Who Can't Be Bothered to Do It, who's just out with another great day at sea, life aboard the USS George H.W. Bush. Jeff spent two weeks aboard CVN-77 as opposed to my one night aboard CVN-71, And at the bottom of the hour, we'll talk to Jeff about his observations from his fortnight aboard America's mightiest warship. But first, with the shootings this week at Seattle Pacific University and in May in Santa Barbara, we've gone beyond numb to the shock reported in the media from gun violence and mental illness. After all, J-Lo has split with Casper Smart, so you can understand we've got other distractions. But not my friend Michael Waldman, the former chief speechwriter to President Clinton, and president of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU's School of Law. He's out with his latest book, The Second Amendment, a biography that brings us back to Lexington and Concord when the Minutemen kept and bared arms. And he brings us all the way forward to Sandy Hook when, tragically, Adam Lanza did the same. But the lifetime journey of that one sentence, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right to the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, has been long, tortured, and very consequential, clearly worthy of a biography. Its biographer, Michael Waldman, joins us now. Mike, welcome to Polyoptics. Uh, Great to be with you, Josh. The book has been out now for just a short while, but it's getting uh, all sorts of praise and and other, the usual commentary that you would get from all sides of this issue. But, Michael, before we get to the Second Amendment biography, I have to ask you to put back, just for one moment, your speechwriter hat and comment on the uh, communications that we've seen from the White House, from President Obama over the last few weeks, beginning with the sort of uh, uh, shortened process by which Secretary of Veterans Affairs Eric Shinseki stepped down, 
and then into the Oval Office, into the Rose Garden, this uh, usual momentous moment when reporters are called in on a Sunday for a statement that the president is about to make. I want to hear from Bo Bergdahl's father after the president made his statement. I'd like to say to Bo right now, who's having trouble speaking English, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, Zayabayim. I'm your father, Bo. Um, the people of Afghanistan, the same. Um, Khalifa Al Thani. Uh, the complicated nature of this recovery was will never really be comp- comprehended. Um, to each and every single one who affected this um, in this country, in the service branches, at the State Department, uh, throughout the whole of American government and around the world, at international uh, governments around the world, thank you so much. Um, we, we just can't communicate the words uh, this morning when we heard from the President. Michael Waldman, as a presidential communicator and speechwriter going so far back, you're certainly you in front of the screen on many similar moments to do a Rose Garden statement of of import. What were your thoughts this week when the uh, moment of import turned out to be the announcement of Bo Bergdahl's uh, swap for uh, al-Qaeda captives at Guantanamo? Well, I think that it's an interesting a challenging moment for any White House uh, managing public communication on something like this, where there's so much that cannot be said publicly uh, all along the way. You know, we've had POW exchanges, prisoner exchanges. We've had things like this in the past. It's often challenging as a matter of explaining it to the public. I know that in Israel it was very controversial when one uh, prisoner was exchanged for something like a thousand detainees and, uh, you know, countries do this. I think the challenge for the White House, of course, is the underlying story of uh, this particular soldier's service and whether he deserted the post and all these questions that have been raised in the media um, and and what process is going to undergo uh, to determine that. I think, uh, but for that, it would have been um, an understandable uh, an understandable thing to do. I think that certainly complicated it, but I, 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 this is one of these things where I'm not sure there's any right answer. Um, and uh, the father's passion and compassion for his son is obviously very real. Um, and you can certainly uh, empathize with him uh, at a moment like that. We can all empathize, Michael. But again, you and I are around the table at the Roosevelt Room, and you're about to be tasked to write a speech, and I'm about to be tasked to set up an event. And my fundamental question as a communicator is, should we really have done that, done that on a Sunday, done that at all, or left it to Chuck Hagel or uh, or just an issued statement? The notion of creating a um, a positive communications moment and then Susan Rice going out and talking about his service with honor when those questions really are still to be determined. Maybe you just punt on this one in terms of the visual and the speech. Yeah, and of course, one of the questions that comes to mind is, um, it, did they know that that was all going to come out, and they wanted to put it all in context, or would, or is that not make it up the food chain, or who knows? Um, you're right that in some respects, uh, the choice of 
having the president go out to announce something is a significant choice. Um, of course, this comes at a time when uh, the administration is, I assume, trying to put a bit of a punctuation mark on uh, our um, 13-year uh, war in Afghanistan and uh, and uh, other steps to kind of show that the president isn't isn't hamstrung by Congress's inactivity and doing things that he thinks are important. But I don't know what the thinking was. I mean, I, I think in terms of the General Shinseki departure, uh, that was kind of a more, you could probably pull out a, a, a booklet in the drawer in the White House and tells you how to do that one, <laughs> unfortunately for General Shinseki. Um, you know, the question there, again, is was uh, did it take a long time for him to be called in and to be held accountable uh, or not? But I think that that was something that kind of went according to the rule book of how one makes such announcements. Well, Michael Walbin, now author of the Second Amendment, a biography, let's go back to a prior conflict, the beginning of one. It's April 18th, 1775, and the British are marching from Boston to seize uh, on a garrison uh, in Lexington and Concord, and the powder stores there. And just because, you know, video games are so much of a part of our popular culture now in terms of bringing history that is unrecorded on video back to life, let's hear a scene from the video game of Assassin's Creed 3, Lexington and Concord, to set up the scene of Captain Parker on the Lexington Green. Stand your ground, men! Don't fire! Unless fired upon! But if they mean to have a war, let it begin here! Pick can. Disperse, you damn rebels! Lay down your arms and disperse! What the deuce are you doing? Hold your position! Ravens! Breakers! Michael Waldman, that was the, uh, those damn rebels were our Lexington militia, then followed by the Concord militia. What's wrong with, uh, with them and holding their arms in their, in their own homes and hearth? That was pretty uh, well recorded. The uh, that w- what the British regular army soldiers met was in fact the well-regulated militia of the colonial times, and those militias, the Minutemen, were very very important to Americans uh, in those days. And so, when you read the text of the Second Amendment, which is as we know. Uh, says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Uh, those well-regulated militias were seen not only as the way they kept the peace, the way they defended themselves, the way they fought some of the Revolutionary War against the British, although pretty quickly they realized the militias weren't, weren't that good at it, uh, but as a bulwark against tyranny. Uh, those militias were like nothing we know now. Every adult man, eventually every adult white man, was in the militia for their entire adult life, and they were required by law to own a gun and to keep it at home and to bring it in for emergencies such as Lexington and Concord. And uh, it is... It's like nothing we know now. It's a level of civic um, duty and and also of, in a sense, of governmental compulsion that we we can barely wrap our minds around. So when people ask about the Second Amendment, as as it is cited and invoked uh, in today's gun debates and uh, over 
um, personal use of guns. And people say, well, was it an individual right uh, or was it the militia? It was really both and neither. They thought uh, it was an individual right to fulfill the duty to serve in the militia. And the way it got into the Constitution is after the Revolutionary War, uh, the country kind of began to fall apart. A number of leading citizens went in behind closed doors and wrote a constitution, a new constitution. It thrust very strongly toward a stronger central government. And when it was released, it was very controversial. And one of the fears that people had about that constitution was that they would allow a an army like the British Army, the King George's Army, uh, but this time from the federal government, to crush the state militias. Uh, and so that fear was one of the things that produced the Second Amendment and the other initial amendments to the Constitution. Let's hear, just in terms of, uh, to set the scene again, from HBO's uh, miniseries, John Adams, a conversation between uh, Benjamin Franklin uh, Adams and Thomas Jefferson on needing to really get back to the table and write this thing called the Constitution. I expect that any constitutional document that emerges from Philadelphia will be as compromised as our Declaration of Independency. I am increasingly persuaded that the earth belongs exclusively to the living and that one generation has no more right to bind another to its laws and judgments than one independent nation has the right to command another. But surely the Constitution, as it did with the ones we wrote for our own states, is meant to establish the stability and the long-term legality essential to the continuation of civilized society. Michael Walbin, they they made their first start with writing the Constitution, Adams, Jefferson, and Franklin, but then they decided that the job wasn't quite done and they needed a Bill of Rights. Why? Well, it's an interesting uh, thing. I'd say that, you know, when we look back at the founding era, we yearn for HBO's John Adams, but a lot of the time it turns out it was more like Veep. Um, you, you had a... Uh, a very agitated public with a lot of concerns about the new constitution and they were some of the concerns were valid and some of them were kind of crazy and people were just terrified that it was going to immediately going to lead to tyranny to to uh uh a monarchy to uh all kinds of uh retreat from what limited democracy they had to get the constitution passed uh, ratified by the states, there began to be a kind of a a formula, which is that it would get ratified, but there would be an agreement that there would be some kind of recommended amendments. And there were dozens and dozens and dozens of amendments sent in, uh, and also calls for a new convention. And the, the amendments, as you can guess, were kind of all over the place. It fell to the Federalists, who didn't want the Constitution amended at all, but who'd won the elections uh, for the first Congress. It fell to them to uh, translate that public anger and anguish into something. And and James Madison played the key role. Uh, He uh, was against the Bill of Rights. It was against having amendments, as we would say now. He was against it before he was for it. (laughs) But he ran for Congress, uh, and in his district, which was gerrymandered, uh, long before Jerry signed any signed his name to the congressional district that gives that phenomenon yep. its name. 
uh, he faced an anti-constitutional electorate. And uh, the swing vote was uh, actually the Baptist community, who were at the time an oppressed religious minority. And they said, we want a religious freedom amendment. So he had to do the first great epical flip-flop in American politics, came out four amendments and vowed to pass them. So when he came to Congress, that's what he did. He tried to do, and he wound up proposing uh, 17 amendments. And one of them dealt with, they ranged on everything from the size of congressional districts to congressional pay to what we now know the Second Amendment. And it's very striking. Madison's proposal for the Second Amendment was quite uh, clear in some respects about what he was thinking about. It actually had a conscientious objector clause saying that if you didn't, if you had religious scruples about bearing arms, well, you didn't have to do your military service in person. Uh, it's very striking, given the intense gun debates today and the way we've changed over time how we look at the Second Amendment, that if you look at the notes that Madison took at the Constitutional Convention, the records, with a few scattered exceptions of those ratification conventions in the states, or the debate in the Congress on the floor of the House of Representatives over the Second Amendment as they wrote it, there's not a word about an individual right to gun ownership for personal protection uh, or hunting. The, the things we think about and talk about now, it was all focused on the militia. And again, the militia was made up of people carrying their guns from home. So it's just such a completely different world. I think it's very hard to draw um, clear and immediate uh, answers about what we ought to do now with gun safety issues from that time. And then the funny thing is, once it got ratified, pretty quickly that militia system began to fade away and the country began to change. The country began to change a lot. Michael Waldman, author of the Second Amendment of Biography, certainly over the next 150 to 200 years. And we move forward then to really the 1980s when uh, and and really before that, when the NRA became subsumed by um, gun rights, uh, the gun rights interest, and then they were so uh, well represented by a spokesman uh, who was for the NRA, what Ronald Reagan was for the Republican Party in the 1980s, with the great respect that I have uh, for President Reagan, uh, Charlton Heston became the face and the voice of the National Rifle Association. And both you and I on this program have uttered the 27 words of the Second Amendment. But when you hear it in Heston's voice and through his message, you can understand how powerful the public relations campaign for the NRA became. Let's hear Charlton Heston and then tell us how the Second Amendment and the discussion around it evolved in the latter part of the 20th century. Something's gone wrong. For all our vigilance and battle scars over the Bill of Rights, have we let the flame of freedom's torch grow cold? Because there can be no torch to pass where there's no flame. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The Second Amendment. Textbooks ignore it, schools teach against it, clergy preach against it, politicians legislate against it, media ridicule it, movies pervert it, courts avoid it, and too many gun owners permit it. So it's not unreasonable that with one lost generation, we could lose the Second Amendment forever. Charles Heston, Michael Waldman. Uh, those 27 words sound a lot better coming out of his lips than the tortured writing that you write about. But 
if you can, for our listeners, unpack the different clauses and the different views that people have on those clauses and then put yourself in that uh, pantheon of people who have commented on where you see it sitting today. Well, and that is a very interesting uh, segment for a number of reasons that I'll get to. So, uh, you know, what happened was the country grew more individualistic. People stopped showing up for their militia duty. That uh, that central clause about the well-regulated militia stopped kind of having a lot of meaning. Uh, and the uh, some people would say the amendment stopped having meaning. And what happened was we grew uh, as a country where there were many guns, certainly, and there were gun laws side by side. Now, there were gun laws, too, at the colonial times, uh, you know, gun control laws. Uh, and that's how the country kind of grew. Um, you, you even had in the Wild West, uh, Dodge City, uh, the archetypal frontier town, where, where there's a photo from the 1880s which looks like a movie set. It's a dusty street, and it's got the saloons and the hitching posts, and right in the middle of the street is a sign that says, Welcome to Dodge City, Firearms Prohibited. Uh, and that's how we grew as a country. You had guns, you had gun control laws. Um, it got to the point where, reflecting just as Charlton Heston described, the consensus, the Chief Justice of the United States, the very conservative Chief Justice, Warren Burger, uh, said in 1991 that the idea that the Second Amendment recognized an individual right to gun ownership was a fraud on the public. Well, what happened? What happened was the organization that Mr. Heston became the leader of a little bit later, the National Rifle Association, uh, began in the 1970s to wage a hugely effective uh, legal and public campaign to change what we saw the meaning of the Second Amendment was. And you could hear that uh, in that in that very effective clip from Heston. Yep. Um, and and uh, and the music they, doesn't hurt either. No, it doesn't. But at the, it, there was a, rev, a meeting of the NRA annual meeting in 1977. It was kind of it was, it was they were not wild about gun control, but they principally spoke for the interests of hunters and sportsmen. And there was kind of a, a rebellion. Uh, the members voted out the old leadership and voted in new, much more um, intense doctrinal devotees of the Second Amendment, and it reshaped itself around that as a constitutional cause. One thing that was interesting about that clip you just played is, if you go into the lobby of the National Rifle Association building today, there on the wall, in the pride of place, is the Second Amendment. But it's not the way Heston read it. They've edited it. They actually cut out the part about the well-regulated militia. They have two dots. They don't even have three dots. They have two dots. <laughs> and so that's one of the things that, that's interesting about uh, maybe changes in the Second Amendment, they, rather in the, uh, in the NRA since Heston's days. They, don't, they leave that part out now. The other thing that's really interesting is so they, they, cha- they backed a lot of scholarship. They changed public opinion. They changed politicians' approach. They changed the organs of government. And so that over the past uh, 10 years, when they finally, gun rights advocates finally went to court, uh, the doctrine fell like a ripe apple from the tree. The Supreme Court ruled for the very first time, the very first time in 2008, that uh, the Second Amendment recognizes an individual right to gun ownership. Um, and it had ruled otherwise repeatedly before. Now, I uh, do a lot of public appearances. I debate people. I talk about this stuff. And what's fascinating is these days the gun rights folks 
deny that there was any change. They say, no, 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 no. this is the way it's been all along. Uh, there's been no change here. Uh, and, of course, just hearing Charlton Heston's um, baritone voice and the things he was saying, what he was describing, in fact, was uh, pretty much the way people did regard the Second Amendment for most of the country's history until pretty recently. And yet Heston was not uh, empowered as a Supreme Court justice to write the majority opinion in uh, Heller versus the District of Columbia. That was Antonin Scalia, Mike Waldman, in 2008, in which uh, real law was put to the, the views that Heston were, was espousing. So ju- uh, just Associate Justice Scalia made a rare appearance on Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace talking about originalism and his philosophy toward writing that opinion. And I want to see if you can break down his argument and see if that was consistent with a well-regulated militia. Originalism is sort of a, a subspecies of textualism. Textualism means uh, you're, you're governed by the text. That's the only thing that is relevant to your decision, not whether the outcome is desirable, not whether legislative history says this or that, but the text of the statute. Uh, originalism uh, says that when you consult the text, you give it the meaning it had when it was adopted, not, not some later modern meaning. Mike Walbin, if Judge Scalia is right, uh, how does that relate back to the militia? Well, it's an interesting thing. First of all, uh, there's a lot of debate, and I would debate, whether what he just described is the right or the only way to read a constitutional provision uh, where the words often are vague, uh, or, or as they are in this case, not quite vague so much as confusing, uh, and where uh, we have something that the country has evolved and our reading of how the constitution should be read over time has evolved too and that's been true for 200 plus years not just on this provision but on so many others um, what's striking to me and one of the criticisms that i and some others certainly especially a lot of conservatives have of the heller opinion is that it it it, it purported to be originalism but it but it actually skipped over the most important parts of the history in the 64 pages of the majority opinion that Justice Scalia wrote in that opinion, only two dealt with the militia, which was what the entirety, for example, of the debate in the House of Representatives was about. So if you want to understand what it meant to the people at the time, genuinely what it meant, you certainly have to understand not just the text, but the context, and what a phrase like bare arms meant to the people then. Um, interestingly, when you take away the finery of uh, of the originalism that just Justice Scalia said uh, in his view that the Heller opinion was the vindication of originalism, when you take aside the kind of um, trolling through history that the opinion does, it actually says something uh, a bit milder than a lot of its supporters probably expect. It said, yes, there's an individual right. And again, that was the first time that the Constitution, that the court had ever said that. But it said, like all individual rights, there are limitations on that right. It actually listed some of them. Now, generally speaking, in the Heller case, the Heller case dealt with the, the issue of whether you had a right to own a handgun in your home, to protect yourself in your home. Uh, it didn't say what the Second Amendment right was beyond that, and it didn't say what the limits were. But uh, all the courts that have looked at it ever since 
there have been, as you can imagine, dozens and dozens of cases where uh, people have challenged the gun laws in states all over the country, uh, saying they violate the Second Amendment. Uh, and the Supreme Court applied the Second Amendment to the states a couple of years after the Heller case. Dozens and dozens of cases, and overwhelmingly, judges have upheld the gun laws, have said, yes, there's an individual right, but society also has a right to protect itself. And there's a compelling, a strong governmental interest uh, in in these criminal laws. And so even though there's an individual right, the, these laws do not... Um, unconstitutionally uh, step on it. So as it has actually played out, uh, the Heller case leaves these laws intact. Uh, and to give you an example, when there was uh, the debate last year over background checks uh, and legislation, the bipartisan bill to strengthen background checks that followed on the uh, heels of the terrible massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School, it was the filibuster in the Senate that blocked it, but it really wasn't the argument that it somehow violated the Second Amendment, because very few people thought it did. That's right. And we have, uh, we'll have we'll go out with uh, President Obama's comments in the Rose Garden that day. Michael Waldman, author of uh, the Second Amendment, a biography. Clearly, as you write, Michael, uh, it's an evolving discussion uh, that, that will reflect, I think, as you write, uh, the changing nature of our society. And sometime in January 2017, there'll be a new president who may have more or less influence on the members of the Senate based on the makeup of that Senate. And maybe at that point, uh, while we respect uh, the opinions laid down in Heller, the, the laws that are in place and whether there can be modifications of reasonable background checks might have uh, another chance at uh, a vote without a filibuster. Michael Waldman, author of The Second Amendment, a biography, thanks so much for joining us on Polyoptics. Thanks so much for having me. And unfortunately, this pattern of spreading untruths about this legislation served a purpose, because those lies upset an intense minority of gun owners, and that in turn intimidated a lot of senators. I've heard folks say that having the families of victims lobby for this legislation was somehow misplaced. A prop, somebody called them. Emotional blackmail, some outlet said. Are they serious? Do we really think that thousands of families whose lives have been shattered by gun violence don't have a right to weigh in on this issue? History in the making. This is POTUS. Sirius XM 124. As promised at the top of the show, an appreciation of what our men and women in uniform do to project power, keep the peace, and defend the United States' interest overseas. It comes courtesy of Jeff Dyer, the great celebrated author of such works as Jeff in Venice and Yoga, for people who can't be bothered to do it. He's just out with another great day at sea, life aboard the USS George H.W. Bush. Jeff, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be on it. I'm wondering, Jeff, uh, I'm not sure about when you did your fortnight aboard the USS uh, George H.W. Bush, but wondering if you ever have any post-traumatic stress of the catapult sound uh, going back and forth above your uh, uh, officer's stateroom. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, no, it was, um, I thought, I mean, I certainly had a lot of pre-traumatic stress in that um, when I first got to my room, it was during a, a period of uh, launch and recovery, and it was so deafeningly loud. I thought, well, this is this is just catastrophic. I'm not going to get I'm not going to get a wink of sleep for two two uh, two weeks. Um, uh, but um, it turned out there was this nice quiet phase during the night for about seven or eight hours when no uh, no operations were taking place. So it was relatively quiet, although relatively in this context means something different to what it would mean if you were in a nice suburban street somewhere. Uh, as you are moving around the country in the United States, Jeff, and I, I'll mention that you're from uh, the UK originally, but living now in Venice, California, talking to groups, especially around this week, June 5th, June 6th, June 7th, the 70th anniversary of Normandy. Uh, how does your uh, observation of our sailors aboard uh, CVN 77 relate to sort of the perceptions that people have about the sacrifices made during the greatest generation, not just United States veterans, but also uh, the British with whom we fought side by side? Yeah, that's right. I don't think there's much of a of a connection, really. Although, um, you know, of, of course, the um, the Second World War has this very sort of clear uh, moral moral narrative. Um, since then, almost every war since then has been rather more sort of morally ambiguous. I guess. I mean, there's there was no serious. I know Nicholson Baker a few years ago published. Uh, that, that book, Human Smoke, arguing that the uh, Second World War had we, we shouldn't have got involved in it, but there's a pretty cons- there's a pretty broad consensus that there was not much not much choice in that. Whereas I, I'm struggling to think of any war since the Second where there's not been considerable doubt cast about whether we should have been in, involved in it at all. I mean, from uh, a British perspective, that applies most most blatantly to the to the Falklands or Malvinas War. That's right. The Falklands Malvinas, and I call it the Falklands, was the first uh, war in which my consciousness was certainly raised. Uh, I was a little too young during Vietnam, but I remember clearly uh, what happened with uh, uh, Prime Minister Thatcher marshalling the British fleet led by the HMS Invincible, the Invincible being sort of the first uh, British aircraft carrier with which I became familiar, and uh, it it fought... uh, it, it. led the Armada down to the Malvinas, down to the Falklands, and then very quickly uh, the the British press again began to question whether the maintenance of a carrier uh, was necessary for um, the maintenance of the of the British Empire. And I want to hear just a little bit of a documentary from probably Jeff the. Uh, the early 90s, as uh, as people talked about the the role of the British aircraft carrier, because it is so unique. Your perspective as a British writer coming aboard a U.S. carrier for two weeks. Let's hear a little bit of that documentary. Just off the Azores, the little aircraft carrier invincible, tranquil as a toy in a bathtub, a pocket-sized, portable, floating airfield, half fish, half bird, aviation for the connoisseur. If you pay income tax, it costs you six pounds out of your pocket. Dispensing with overseas bases and long-range jets, alone or in a battlefield. A repertoire for all tastes from Soviet submarine hunting to third world gunboat diplomacy and the whole range in between. So, Jeff Dyer, uh, what did the Department of Defense think when you came knocking on their door and said, I'd like to uh, 
be a writer in residence and spend a fortnight aboard uh, one of your supercarriers. Yeah, I mean, just to go back to that amazing clip you just played, I couldn't tell whether that was actually serious or satire, actually. <laughs> Um, I will yeah, send so, you. I'll send you the link. It's in full, and it's and it becomes quite critical of of UK defence spending. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can I can I can believe that. Um, anyway, so the nice thing about my my getting aboard the uh, the USS George H W Bush is that I personally didn't have to to go knocking. Uh, I'll just give you a little bit of background to it. The writer Alan de Botton who had been for, I think, two, he spent a week or two weeks as writer-in-residence at Heathrow Airport and wrote a little book about his experiences, which he'd enjoyed so much that he had this idea of setting up uh, a foundation called Writers-in-Residence to get writers-in-residence in unusual places. And he asked me if there were anywhere unusual I would like to go, and I had this idea of, um, you know, I, I thought it was crazy to uh, to go anywhere that I might at some point, have had access in my normal life. So I felt the more closed the world, the better. And really, without any hope that it might actually happen, I had this wild idea that, yeah, if I could get on an aircraft carrier, that would be great. And so behind the scenes, uh, there was an awful lot of uh, back and forth, and there was a lot of hassle, I think, because, you know, I'm in the U.S. now. I've got a, I've got a, a, a visa to be here. And, you know, that involved a lot of headache and paperwork. So I can only imagine that behind the scenes there was a lot more, um, there, was, there, was a, 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 there, was, there was some quite complicated negotiation, negotiating going on and probably quite a lot of vetting. But to cut that story short, at some point he called back and said, yep, you're, you know, they're happy to have you on board. All we need to do now is work out the dates. And I was uh, actually I was surprisingly busy that for for for, that, for the period that was first um, uh, mooted as a possibility, but at some point uh, I found myself flying to the big U.S. Navy base in Bahrain, and from there on a cod to the carrier. As we were talking about earlier, you and I have both had the experience of a cod, both uh, being uh, uh, stopped by the arresting hook and also being catapulted off uh, the carrier's deck, and the the. Part the culture of the USS George W. Bush that you write about, uh, the people in their various jobs on the flight deck, the hangar deck, uh, even the dental office, are some of the things that we've seen in other documentaries about life aboard a about a, a modern U.S. aircraft carrier. But we all know that farther deep into the bowels of the ship are a lot of uh, confidential. Uh, uh, systems and processes and certainly the storage of nuclear weapons whether or not you wrote about them in another great day at sea was were your escorts and the navy more forthcoming with you about some of the things that are not made public about what the what the bush can do in in a pinch yeah that would be the i mean let's put it like this if the escorts were deliberately escorting me or steering me away from anything they didn't want me to see they did it so skillfully that I wasn't even aware of it. So um, they were there, there was great sort of charm and, and skill like that. Um, there were all sorts of places on the aircraft carrier, I'm guessing, that I wasn't allowed to go to. But I think that would be mainly from a safety point of view. So, of course, I didn't get near the reactor room. And uh, I have no, no regrets on that, on that score. Um, uh, you know, and in terms of... Uh, the kind of weaponry that we saw. Well, we were, I was down in one of the um, 
uh, one of the places where they where, where they store weapons, all this kind of stuff. It didn't feel like my access was being at, at all restricted, but it was, in a sense, it was inherently restricted because I was only on the ship for two weeks. And in terms of, um, uh, I mean, not so much the technology, but in terms of getting to know the people, it seems to me that, um, you know, I spoke to a lot of people and I spoke to some of them, you know, a, a couple of times. Apart from uh, Ensign Newell, who was uh, who was showing me around, who I really became great friends with, and he's a wonderful guy, um, I didn't really deeply get to know people. And I thought about this, and I realized that if I'd spent, say, another two weeks on the carrier, that would have made no difference at all. Uh, it seems to me if I'd wanted to write, if I'd, to, to write really sort of... Uh, sort of, you know, lengthy, deep stories about people that I, I'd met. Um, first of all, the sort of the process of getting to, to, to select the people I would write about, that would take kind of two, a couple of months. And I think to really get to the, you know, to, to some of the sort of murky, murkier areas of people's lives on the boat, that would have had to have been a, a full six-month deployment, the kind of thing that you get in documentary Filmmaking, when you know what the, what filmmakers always say is, yeah, after a, after a certain amount of time, they completely forgot I was there. But actually, I think my stay on the boat for two weeks, uh, I was always uh, I was always quite conspicuous. You're conspicuous for a couple of reasons, Jeff. Among them, you're about uh, a foot taller than the average seaman. Is that right? <laughs> I don't know if I'm not uh, making me sound like a human oddity, but yeah, I was certainly one of the tallest people on the on the ship. And uh, yeah, so um, yeah, so I think I, w- I was quite quite conspicuous. Uh, but I was very glad I was on a carrier rather than a submarine, when I think I really would have been bent double. So Jeff Dyer, one of my favorite films from the 1980s is uh, the Final Countdown with Kirk Douglas and Martin Sheen, in which the USS Nimitz is transported through a time warp back to December 6th, 1941, with the option, with the opportunity perhaps of, di- of averting the attack of the Japanese. Uh, uh, Navy on Pearl Harbor and thus rewriting history. I want to hear a little bit of that clip and uh, compare it to your experience in the Combat Information Center aboard the USS George H.W. Bush. Radar shows enemy planes heading on course. 220. Sweet Jesus. Skipper, they're headed straight for us and we've got an armed strike force just sitting on the deck. Alert one, this is Eagle One. You're cleared to fire. Splash the zeros. I say again, splash the zeros. Yes, sir. This has got to be a dream. So, Jeff Dyer, before you headed out from Bahrain to the deck of the of CVN-77, did you, like me, uh, look back at some of these depictions of aircraft carriers in action? Yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd spent quite a lot of time watching documentary footage of the Pacific War and the Battle of Midway, this kind of stuff. And one of the things that struck me, actually, is that, well... Um, Quite soon after the invention of the aeroplane, there was a very, very short interval before people started thinking about this idea of launching planes from from boats. And, uh, you know, obviously, technologically, there were all sorts of difficulties with that. But I'm struck by the way that essentially, uh, of course, the technology is refined and, you know, the planes are jets rather than propellers and all of this kind of stuff. But really, um, you make a very few adjustments, and it's the, the stuff that I was seeing on board 
it was ve- it, it didn't it what didn't take much of a you wouldn't have to make many changes to sort of to imagine what it was like being in the Pacific War facing kamikaze attacks attacks in in the Second World War. Um, you know the the basic operating principles: catapult planes off, uh, catch them with an arresting wire on the way back, re- remain the same. And the, the 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 look of the carriers is not that different. Although you know behind the scenes, the circuitry, the fueling, all this kind of stuff is of course very very uh, very very much more advanced. Uh, yeah, so let's hear a little bit from Graham Motram of the Fleet Air Museum. He's talking about the basic uh, physics involved in making a very heavy airplane uh, leave a very small aircraft carrier in the, short, in the space of a very short distance. The fundamental problem is, is down to a basic law of physics. If you want to launch a large mass in a short space of time or distance, you've got to give it a lot of stored energy very rapidly. This is the basic kind of technology that's been known for thousands of years, the slingshot. I store the energy by stretching the elastic. I put my aircraft in it, store the energy, let go, and it flies wonderfully. But of course, this isn't a real aircraft with a real pilot. The challenges of making it work in the real world are much more significant. So, Jeff Dyer, not only did you have that catapult above your uh, room on the USS George H.W. Bush, but when it was finally time to go aboard the C-2A Greyhound, you're strapped into the seat uh, very tightly and about to have your first catapult experience. How did your collarbones fare from that from that uh, launching yeah. off the carrier? Yeah, well, I was really looking forward to it, but they, um, the obviously they they really stressed the safety issues, and they said, you know, you've got to be uh, strapped in very very firmly, and it just happened that the the buckles on the on the on the safety belt were right over my both of my collarbones, and I was so nervous about this because I, I had no idea of quite how sort of how extreme the experience was the experience was going to be and i said to the guy you know uh, excuse you know you have to yell to make yourself heard so i was yelling at him excuse me you know the the buckles are right over my collarbone and i mean the guy responded as though i was just kind of whining about a comfort issue he said yeah what do you want me to do about it sir and i said well i'm just worried that my my both my collarbones are going to break when we when, when we're slung off the plane um uh, because we were facing backwards, I should say, as well. Um, and uh, he just smiled and said, it's not going to happen. And actually, the jolt um, was uh, w- was much less severe than the, the safety briefing had, had led me to expect. So my collarbone survived easily intact. Among the so many interesting vignettes that you have in Another Great Day at Sea, Jeff Dyer, the people that you meet, the jobs that they do, uh, of course, you have to get to the pilot's ready room and the role of pilots, both male and female, aboard CVN-77. And just to provide a little context, we'll go back uh, 30 years or so to uh, Kelly McGillis, the, uh, in, the beautiful flight instructor from Top Gun, and, have, and in her interaction with uh, Maverick Mitchell, t- played by Tom Cruise, uh, at the uh, Top Gun training school. A uh, rolling reversal would work well in that situation. If I reversed on a hard cross, I could immediately go to guns on him. Yeah, but at the speed, it's too fast. It's a little bit too aggressive. Too aggressive? Yeah, I guess when I see something, I go right after it. You didn't tell me who you were the other night. You didn't give me a chance, did you? 
Jeff Dyer, the role of pilots aboard the USS uh, George H.W. Bush, specifically the the women and the role and the challenges that they have in terms of making a long career in the Navy. Yeah, it was really one of the uh, most striking things. I think a, a fifth of the, the crew were, were women. And um, it was reminded me very much, actually, of my, my, my Oxford College, where there'd been this long-running resistance to, to, enable, to letting women into the college. I mean, really long-running, I think about 400 years. And then, you know, women were allowed in eventually, and everyone thought, sort of said, huh, you know, why didn't we do that 300 years ago? And it's similar situation in the Navy, and it, uh, it's, it's, been, it's been an entirely positive thing. And it's really quite, quite striking, actually. There's a, one of the women um, that I met, she was uh, flying call sign Jax, and she was flying solo F-18 combat missions. And I thought, yeah, that's a really, that's a really pretty persuasive answer to the, to the rather backward gender politics of the Taliban, actually. And, um, you know, they, I was asking all the, the, the women that I was talking to if they'd encountered old-style kind of chauvinism. Um, and, you know, they said they had a bit, but they were all very, very, uh, sort of very, very positive about it and stressing the kind of level playing field um, of, of the military. Now, again, you know, I, was, I wrote about what I saw. I could only report directly things that I experienced. And I'm, I was very aware that there's this sort of big, big sort of issues uh, of, of uh, sexual abuse in the military. But, uh, you know, there was, uh, there was just no, no evidence of that uh, that I came across. And in many ways, the carrier seemed a kind of model of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of sort of uh, uh, in interaction and uh, you know, sort of mature dealings between, between the sexes. Well, Jeff Dyer, after two weeks aboard uh, CVN-77, it's finally time to leave. I think you get an opportunity before uh, it's all over to dine in the captain's stateroom with Captain Luther, sample a little bit of the Thai coconut soup that is very different from the usual uh, food afforded uh, both uh, enlisted and uh, officers in the various messes, and then bidding farewell to, uh, to Paul Newell, getting on the cod, and finally flying back to Bahrain. And your experience in repatriation with uh, land is quite interesting because Bahrain is not the most interesting place to spend a few nights, and yet the very uh, ability for a person who's been captive to the sea for two weeks really liberates you on that night in Bahrain, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, in a, in a sense, Bahrain, I mean, it's not, there's not much there for the tourist. It could potentially have been a very interesting place because there was all this talk of, you know, whether the Arab Spring was going to spread to Bahrain, but there was no sign of sort of political unrest on the, on the streets. Um, and, you know, what I should stress at this point is, you know, poor me, I'd been cooped up on this aircraft carrier for two weeks. But, you know, that's, that's absolutely nothing. The deployment for the, for the people on the ship was seven months. But even after that very short time on the ship, it was just an amazing freedom to be able to, uh, to go exactly where I pleased. Uh, and another way in which I should sort of um, uh, fess up to my privileged position. I spend an awful lot of time out in the open on the aircraft carrier. A lot of people are working really hard shifts, and although they're at sea, they might as well be in a kind of uh, factory-type environment with no windows. So, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, my experience on the ship was, was incredibly luxurious in all sorts of ways. But 
it was startling to me how uh, uh, how sort of radical it was this freedom to be able to be able to walk around a city and uh, you know uh, just cross roads and, and and all this kind of stuff after being after feeling so cramped in the in the and having my movement so so necessarily curtailed on, on the ship. You finish your book, Jeff Dyer, Another Great Day at Sea, uh, talking about prayer. The last line of your book is, I prayed for all those who go to the sea in ships. Uh, prayer not usually part of your repertoire. Why were you praying for the men and women that you'd spent 14 nights with? Yeah, this was, I mean, it became clear in the in the course of my stay, this was a, a really quite intensely religious ship. A Christ, it was a Christian, overwhelmingly Christian ship. And I'm a, uh, I'm a completely uncompromising, hardline atheist. Uh, but, you know, that doesn't mean I'm deaf to, uh, to any kind of uh, spiritual concerns. And I found that each day, just before lights out, when this prayer would come over the, the main circuit, uh, I, I not only listened, I was quite, quite touched by it, actually. And, of course, also I, I went to these, uh, a church service where there was gospel singing, and, of course, gospel is always intensely moving. And I think it was, there were several things going. I think, really, there's, a, uh, you know, those lovely prayers that I remember uh, from, from when I was younger. Um, there, there's an acknowledgement there's something particularly sort of, um, you know, the sea renders the people uh, who, who are on it um, especially vulnerable. There's, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's that going on, I think. And I think I was just susceptible to that. Um, just a slight correction. I wouldn't say that uh, I, 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 I prayed because, as I say towards the end of the book, you know, how can you pray if you, if, you, if you know that there's nothing to pray to? So I do this kind of, I have a slightly re, a sort of atheistic redefinition of prayer where I say if it means to just think of people and think fondly of them, then to that extent it, maybe what I was doing was was praying, but it's a very, very heavily qualified idea of, of prayer. Understood, Jeff Dyer, author of Another Great Day at Sea, Life Aboard the USS George H.W. Bush. Thank you for the portrait that you paint of the thousands of people who do spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 12 months a year at sea, maintaining their vigil to protect the people uh, of the country that they represent and, and the ideals of that country. So, Jeff, uh, back to other areas of your writing, I'm sure, but thank you for your 14 days of of writers in residence in which you gave us this very illuminating portrait. Oh, thank you, Josh. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Thanks, Jeff. We stand on sacred soil. Fifty years ago at this place, a miracle of liberation began. On that morning, democracy's forces landed to end the enslavement of Europe. Around 7 a.m., Lieutenant Colonel James Earl Rutter, 2nd Ranger Battalion, United States Army, led 224 men onto the beaches below and up these unforgiving cliffs. Bullets and grenades came down upon them, but by a few minutes after 7, here, exactly here, the 1st Rangers stood. Today, let us ask those American heroes stand again. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Catherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on Sirius XM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week.
Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. POTUS.